Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, the European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre, and what an amazing episode we have today. I'm very happy to bring you Professor Alan Kahn. Professor is a prolific author, and we're going to talk about one of his latest books. But before that, he received a PhD in history from the University of Chicago, currently Professor of British Civilization at the Université de Versailles Saint-Quentin, and a senior member emeritus of the Institut Universitaire de France. He lives in Paris and is a connoisseur of croissant and one of my people. He's coming to the podcast to talk about his latest book, which is called Freedom from Fear, an Incomplete History of Liberalism, which was published by Princeton University Press in the United States in August and now in Europe in October. He's a prolific author, and we're going to talk about that during the conversation, but he has several books that are of special interest to the professor, particularly in the works of Tocqueville. And after our conversation, I will tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of October. But now, with no further ado, I bring you Professor Alan Kahn. I'm here with Professor Alan Kahn. Professor, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's a privilege to have you here. Your book, it's amazing. I already introduced it on your presentation. This is a tremendous work. It's beautifully written, very content-rich, uh, thought-provoking. Uh, many times uh, I stop reading so that I can think about what you wrote in the page. And it takes you to a journey from basic concepts to a historical perspective and then to a very powerful ending, which I'm going to bring up in our conversation. Naturally, a book of this magnitude cannot, we cannot render justice in just a 30-minute conversation, but still, I'm going to bring some of the uh, key points that you wrote. For our listeners, however, and we're going to naturally tell them to get the book, but I also want them to get to know you a little better. So please start introducing yourself. What was the path that you took to the point that we're now talking on the podcast? Well... Um, I'm originally um, American. I've been living in France on a permanent basis since 2007. I'm now a, a dual national, so I try to keep in mind, and I think it's reflected in the book, this sort of bicontinental identity from the two sides of the pond. One of the problems with many studies of liberalism and, and other worldwide traditions of thought is an exclusive focus on one particular area. Um, I was just looking at the book the other day, and I noticed something that really made me quite proud, that in one footnote I had references to works in both English, French, and German. <laughs> and so often, books about liberalism take one exclusive linguistic perspective. But more particularly, what got me involved in, in this project, I've always been a Tocqueville scholar and someone who worked on, on liberal thought, but I got increasingly annoyed by... 20th century and 21st century attacks on liberalism and sometimes defenses of, of liberalism that concentrated on liberalism as if it was a purely economic or purely political set of ideas. Mm -hmm. And in point of fact, this has mostly not been the case. Uh, as I talk about, the, the original project of the book was not to write a history of liberalism, but to talk about the three pillars of liberalism, freedom, markets, and morals politics, economics, and morality and religion 
all of which were equally central to liberalism in the 19th century and really until quite recently and are one of the strongest points uh, in liberal argument. Indeed, and we're going to get to those in particular, but you just said that you're a Tocqueville scholar. Was this that was always with you or did you develop this uh, interest of yours with your academic career or your even your personal tastes? My dissertation, which became my first book, is called Aristocratic Liberalism, the Social and Political Thought of Jakob Burkhardt, John Stuart Mill and Alexis de Tocqueville. And of those three, it was Tocqueville who was my first interest. And I've always been fascinated about Tocqueville. I think he understood the world we live in today far better than most of us understand it. And he has just an enormous wealth of, of insight into the kind of society in which 95% of the planet now exists, a democratic society. Very good. And it comes through your book that you also a scholar on uh, uh, Mill, which is my my favorite author regarding liberalism, but we'll leave that to a second podcast. We can go over our interests in uh, liberal thinkers and scholars. But let's uh, get into the book right away. Uh, you start this seminal work of yours with a very, very strong sentence. Again, one of those moments that you stop reading when you think <laughs> about it, which is liberal, and I'll quote you now, liberalism is the search for a society in which no one needs to be afraid. Um, this is the premise of the book, naturally. As I said, the book is called Freedom from Fear. But before we get into then the detail, tell us why does this question interest you so much? Well, I spent decades looking for a way to sum up liberalism in a sentence that would both mean something to the average person in the street and also say something worth saying to scholars and political theorists. And this is what I came up with. Mm -hmm. And I think it works. And I think that if you would ask liberal thinkers throughout history, if this was what they were striving for, even if these were not the words they themselves used to describe it, they would say, yes, this is what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what liberalism's fundamental appeal to humanity is based on. This is why people become liberals and want to be liberals. And this is the hope for liberalism in the future. But it is interesting because this freedom from fear naturally connects to liberalism, as, as you said, but could be then transversal to other ideologies. I'm sure conservatives want to be free from fear and socialists want to be free from fear. Everybody wants to be free from fear for themselves, but many strains of political thought want some other group to be afraid. Communists certainly want the bourgeoisie to be afraid. Mm -hmm. Um, conservatives of certain sorts have wanted people of the wrong religion, people of the wrong ethnicity to be afraid. Um, some people want people with certain sexualities to be afraid. Lots of people in this world are very upfront about things saying some portion of the human race ought to be afraid mm -hmm. just by being who they are. Now, socialists, we can also talk about uh, class warfare exactly. and, and distribution of, of, of wealth. Perfect. Rich right. people can be afraid. Poor people can be afraid. Some people want each of those different groups to be afraid. Liberals don't want anyone to be afraid. <laughs> well, we'd want the anti-democratic authoritarians, uh, <laughs> fascists to be afraid. But apart from that, very good. 
But, but actually, I want to I actually stick with that for a moment. Sure, go ahead. This is one of the great problems that liberals have always had to address. How do we treat the fundamentally illiberal, the kinds of people you were talking about? This is what Karl Popper called the, the paradox of tolerance. And liberals have mm-hmm. never really provided an answer to this paradox. The problem is that if we grant complete toleration to those who are completely intolerant, we risk having the tolerance destroyed for yes. everyone. And you, you mentioned that on your book, actually. And again, in a section we'll get back later when we talk about uh, populism and the rise of populism. But even before that, so we uh, settled why freedom from fear. But on the other hand, and again, I'm going to quote you, you mentioned that liberalism is not just a party of fear, but a party of hopes, plural. How do you square this circle then? Well, some of our listeners may recognize that freedom from fear uh, or the liberalism of fear is the title of an essay by the late Judith Schlar. And most of what I have in common with her is actually the title. But (laughs) one of her contentions is that liberalism was completely realistic, that it never had a utopian element to it. I think this is the wrong way to look at it. We have never had a world in which the majority of people lived under liberal regimes. Mm -hmm. We don't have such a world today. uh, And it's, in fact, such things are in decline, as unfortunately our our listeners recognize. Liberalism has always been a utopian concept. We are trying to build something that has never actually existed. And we hope and we pray and we have faith that this can be done. This is why liberalism in the 19th century was always described, or at least often described, as the party of progress. And this was the kind of progress that liberals were striving for on many different fronts and in many different ways. But if liberalism was just about fear, it wouldn't be half as attractive as it is. It has to be about hope. It has to be utopian. It has to engage our forward motion. Again, there is a moment that you talk about utopias and liberalism and how liberalism, in a way, it is the, the search for an utopia, but not a totalitarian uh, utopia. Now, let's get into more of a granular analysis. You already mentioned that you uh, bring three pillars of liberalism, and we are going to spend some time on that, particularly on the moral religious pillar. But even before that, and because, again, the main current, it's about fear, you refer that there are four fears that helped and still help today shape the develop of liberalism. Please get into that. Okay, so liberalism has changed over time. And the way we can track these changes most generally is by what the average liberal is most afraid of. So in the 18th century, the, the fears that dominate proto-liberal minds, in a moment I'll say why I call them Mm proto-liberals, is religious fanaticism and royal absolutism. And this is what a lot of liberal writing is, or proto-liberal writing is directed at, starting with with Locke, although he plays a much less important role in the history of liberalism than is usually assumed, going on to Montesquieu and Smith, who are the characters with which I begin my story, with whom I begin my story. Around the time of the American and French revolutions, these fears, without entirely going away, are subsumed under a new set of fears, revolution and reaction, Mm -hmm. the Jacobin 
or Napoleon. And from the very late 18th century until around 1870, this is the fear that dominates most liberal thinking. Beginning in the 1870s or 1880s and running till World War I, however, a new fear begins to preoccupy liberals. Religious fanaticism has faded into the background. People are less worried about revolution or reaction uh, once the, the Paris Commune is over in, in 1871. Instead, it's a different kind of fear that comes to the fore, and this is the fear of poverty. Mm-hmm. Now, poverty wasn't invented in 1870. The poor have been with us always. But previously, liberals mostly feared the poor, the poor revolutionaries in the cities and the poor peasant reactionaries in the countryside motivated by religious fanaticism. And they never thought they could actually do anything about poverty. Poverty. The world wasn't rich enough to actually do anything about poverty. But by the 1870s, the world is much wealthier. And people begin to think, you know, perhaps with the aid of this government, we can actually do something to seriously reduce or even eliminate poverty. And instead of being afraid of the poor, we will recognize that the poor have a great deal to fear. They may well be thrown out of their beds, not by the secret police um, or by the Inquisition, but because they haven't paid their rent. And this limits their abilities in all kinds of ways to flourish as human beings. And so you have the probably the majority of liberals, whom I call modern liberals at the time, who want to bring the state to bear to help with poverty. And then the people who begin to call themselves classical liberals who say, no, you bring in the state to end poverty or to limit poverty. You're just going to create a bureaucratic despotism. And we have this great split within liberal ranks. And this, but everybody's concerned about poverty and what to do about it. After World War I, the fear of poverty is overtaken by a a new wave of fear, the fear of totalitarianism, fascism, communism. This concentrates liberal minds. Liberals are desperate to overcome the split between classical and modern liberalism. Liberals recognize there must have been a great failure in liberalism somehow if fascism and communism have come to be. Uh, you know, the, the low point of torture on the European continent was probably 1913. It's been rising ever since. Mm-hmm. In some sense, the failure of liberalism can be dated to that point. Uh, so liberals recognize they need to do something else. And so anti-totalitarian liberals of it, liberalisms of various sort become the the third version of liberalism, if you like. Liberalism 1.0, revolutionary action. Liberalism 2.0, fear of poverty. Liberalism 3.0, anti-totalitarianism. We have the Colloque Lippmann in Paris in 1938, trying to address this very need with everybody from Friedrich Hayek to Raymond Aron who are present, Walter Lippmann, the great American representative. Um, after World War II, Part of the same anti-totalitarian liberalism is the end of ideology movement. Mm -hmm. People who think that any kind of ideological commitment is going to lead you to uh, terrorism and totalitarianism. And therefore, people who uh, want to restrict politics to just a little bit of technical tinkering here and there. And then when the 1960s showed that ideology was not dead, you get different kinds of anti-totalitarian liberals represented by libertarianism on the one hand. 
and the egalitarian liberalism represented by John Rawls on the other. And that takes us up to somewhere around 1990 or even 2000, when we begin to have what I consider a new fear dominating liberal thought to which there's not yet been a satisfactory liberal response. And that indeed is the fear of populism, Mm -hmm. which is dominating our thought all over the world. And we'll get into that fear in particular. We won't have too long, unfortunately, Professor. I'm going to ask you if you would please come to the podcast again um, to do a couple of more topics that I will really, really enjoy uh, your insights. But this split between liberals, between classical liberals and more social liberal or progressive liberals, that is something that it still nowadays creates the kind of friction, maybe unnecessary friction or maybe necessary friction. I come from a country where that is clearly, or our friends in the Netherlands, that's a good example. So that, that split is still something that animates uh, liberals and liberalism. I don't know if you want to respond to that. I, I do, because I think there's an important distinction to be made here. There is the fear of poverty, the attempt to do something about poverty, which most liberals are bringing on board in 1900, which is absolutely present in people like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, and is, I think, relatively speaking, uncontroversial among mm, the vast majority of liberals today. But this has to be separated from egalitarianism. Mm -hmm. Ending poverty is one thing. Establishing something close to a completely redistributed society in which equality of opportunity becomes a goal in and of itself, in which equality is what you're looking for and not freedom from fear, and in which, in fact, you're willing to inflict fear in order to maintain equality, this is a very, very different process. Mm And unfortunately, liberals themselves in the early 21st century sometimes get confused about this and think if they get rid of one, they have to get rid of the other. Uh, One of the underlying goals of my book is to explain how this is different. You know, a, a John Rawls really is very different in his notions of egalitarianism, what he calls egalitarian liberalism, um, than Hobhouse or Jane Addams or Léon Bourgeois um, striving to reduce poverty in 1900. Again, we don't have time. (laughs) There is so much to explore here because I want to keep moving. Uh, You mentioned and you already uh, referred to that in passing the three pillars of liberalism. And I saw what you did with the cover of your book. (laughs) So there's like a subliminal message there. So uh, please get into those three pillars, and then I have a couple of questions regarding the the third one. Okay. So when we look at the first flowering of liberalism by the name, because it's only around 1800 the word liberal really takes on a political meaning. Uh, The textbooks will tell you 1810 in Spain, more recent scholarship says about 1798 in France, somewhere around this time. Anyway, typically liberals in this period make political and economic and moral and even religious arguments Mm -hmm. in favor of liberalism, in favor of freeing people from fear. There are some exceptions. 
There are some liberals who like to stand on one foot, even in the early 19th century. Jeremy Bentham is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. But this is the majority of liberal thought, the overwhelming majority of liberal thought, a slightly shrinking majority after 1870, but still the majority down to World War One. But after World War One, and especially after World War Two, more and more liberals rely on one or two pillars to justify liberalism. Those pillars are the political, but especially the economic justifications for liberalism purely based on its economic success. And increasingly, liberals simply stop talking about morality. Uh, libertarians are the classic example of this. Um, morality consists of the freedom to choose. Mm -hmm. What should you choose? Libertarians have absolutely nothing to tell you. They're sure the state shouldn't tell you, but they themselves have nothing to say as libertarians. <laughs> and this is, in my view, a profound weakness of late 20th century liberalism. And this is one of the major reasons, perhaps the major reason for the rise of populism. Human nature abhors a moral vacuum. If your dominant political philosophy offers no morality and no religion, then it's not long going to be your dominant political philosophy, hence populism. It comes across reading your book that that troubles you, that it, it, it's more like the ugly duckling and you're like, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't give up on it. It's going to be this beautiful swan. <laughs> So again, tell us, tell, tell us why, because for me, and, and, and this is not a criticism at all, but using the, the term religious pillar gives me a little bit of trouble because I do understand there's a lot of authors that try to bring the good things about religion and, and make them operational when, we, when we're thinking about liberalism which I understand, which is perfectly fine. The moral part, I think it's more acceptable automatically. But the religious one, it creates a little bit of tension. Do you see where I'm coming from? Um, you speak like a what a populist would describe as a good member um, of the cosmopolitan elite who's very <laughs> uncomfortable with religion as a positive term who can sort of you know, it's, it's okay as long as it stays in the closet. Uh, well, closets are not good places to stand. Mm. We're going to have to bring religion out of the closet as liberals if we want to address a very large part of the world's population. Now, that does not mean accepting religious fanaticism uh, and so on and so forth. But one of the, the, the things I put in the book which you won't find in many histories of liberalism, is a discussion of the profound conflict between liberalism and Catholicism in the 19th century, a conflict that existed across the Atlantic. It's just as strong in the United States as it is in France. Uh, you find evidence, evidence of it in Norway, where there are no Catholics. You don't need Catholics to be anti-Catholic, just as you don't need Jews to be an anti-Semite. Liberalism has, even when it was most attached to certain kinds of religion in the 19th century, had serious problems with other kinds of religion, in this case, the liberal Catholics. And this problem has extended down to the present. 
it's never been satisfactorily eliminated. One of the things about liberalism is, for the most part, it doesn't eliminate problems. Liberals never eliminated religious fanaticism. They never eliminated poverty. They did perhaps eliminate totalitarianism for a brief period, but this is a misleading us, right? All we can try to do is limit problems. So while engaging in moral and indeed religious dialogue with people in a liberal direction is the only way we can hope to limit the influence of illiberal religion. Whereas if we simply say, you know, this is all nonsense or this has nothing to do with us, et cetera, and express our contempt for it, whether concealed or not, uh, we're not going to get anywhere and people are going to vote for the populace. Well, again, <laughs> I don't want to stay too long, but I'm going to use my privilege as the host. The reason, Professor, for me, for that discomfort and use very uh, gently <laughs> explain my discomfort has more to do with the rationality of the, the the rationality in the mechanics of liberalism but again let's let's table that for uh, a second conversation unless you want to react to this <laughs> i will very briefly i'm going to use two philosophical terms here um utility and mm -hmm. perfectionism utility um, greatest happiness, the greatest number, often in purely material sense. Perfectionism, that your goal should not be to be happy, but to become better, to perfect yourself, to achieve some kind of moral or other excellence. Philosophically, these are contradictions, unquestionably. 19th century liberals typically believed in both of them. They had no problem adopting both points of view. 20, late 20th century liberals, not so much. And perfectionism tended to get dumped. People need some kind of guidance about perfection. Liberals have to tell them how to become better people, not just how to become richer. And, and that is, again, beautifully brought in your book. There is a section where you go into that non-duality. Um, very good. Uh, time flies when we're having fun. Um, I have a couple more minutes with you. But let's get into populism. You have an entire chapter on this. And you have this association that I thought was really, really interesting for you to go into, where you say populism is a reaction against liberal legalism. This is a crucial, crucial association. <laughs> Please tell us why. Okay. We can think of laws as providing us with the frame of a picture, a sort of, you know, a, a set of limits. And in one sense, it's great. We want to be able to draw whatever picture we want. We don't want somebody forcing us to draw the picture of our life in one particular way. But if all we give people is a picture frame with nothing in it, it's kind of pretty barren. Mm -hmm. It's pretty bare. It's empty. Uh, you need to at least give some guidance about what you might like to draw. There should be many options. But again, this is my insistence on the need for some kind of perfectionist, moral, religious language coming out of liberal mouths, as opposed to simply saying to people, look, give up your cultural, religious, ethnic heritage, whatever it might be, 
um, and go move to a big city and make more money. Um, simply providing the legal framework, while absolutely essential, <laughs> is not enough. Somebody like Tocqueville, for example, knew that very well. When he talked about how democratic greatness was not just a constitution and voting on the free market economy, but the pursuit of a certain kind of democratic moral grandeur. And you would not be able to have the one without the other. James Madison said the same thing. Uh, mm -hmm. You could not have freedom without virtue, and that virtue was most often founded on religion. We can argue about the most often part. We can talk about different kinds of substitutes for religion or religions by another name, but you can't get away from the need for a moral foundation for freedom. Very good. Um, my religion is American football, so <laughs> <laughs> kidding. As we run out of time, Professor, let's get into liberalism 4.0. Without going too much into what you write in in the, in the in the book in this last part of the book because we natu naturally I want our listeners to to read it but give us just a paintbrush of this a way to fight populism and to also renew liberalism well i'm afraid it's a little bit more of a frame than a completed picture here because liberalism 4.0 doesn't yet exist we don't yet have clear liberal responses to populism Or rather, we have one. We have a lot of people who've responded to my book by basically saying we just need to shout liberalism 3.0 louder. <laughs> we need to be better libertarians, better egalitarian liberals, and then all the populists will vote for us. Well, no. No. That's not going to happen. Uh, we need something else. The outline of it is, and it needs to include some kind of moral religious discourse. One thing I suggest might be a path to that is some version of a green ecological liberalism uh, in which, you know, we don't have to fear for the planet, as it were. There are many possibilities. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a recipe right off. That's in some sense the subject of my next book, Tune Back mm. In, about Seven Years. Breaking news. That's right. Uh, the working title is Democratic Liberalism, Reversing Liberal Democracy, you may know. But what I think I have clearly identified is the way in which populism is the product of cultural alienation, not primarily of economic grievance, that it's not a policy set of policy prescriptions. There are no populist policy prescriptions that exist across national frontiers. But populism is always a way of making people afraid. For populists, there is some part of the people who are not the people. They are the cosmopolitans. They are the people of the wrong ethnicity. They are the immigrants. They are the people of the wrong sexuality. And they are not the nation. And we either metaphorically or physically, in the case of the immigrants, wish to get rid of them. This is why populists in their own mind never lose an election, because the majority of the real people always vote for them. Mm -hmm. Most of the voters of the other side, they're not really the people and they need to be made afraid, which is why while you can reconcile liberalism and nationalism, sometimes you can never reconcile 
liberalism and populism. Populism, indeed, indeed. And as we record this, we're coming into a period of Polish elections, and the, that's exactly what the populists are doing right now, which is the ones that vote for the opposition, they're not real Poles, and it's quite frightening. Very good. We are at the end of our time, so uh, please tell people, apart from the book, which I'm going to put the link on the podcast show notes so that people can access and buy it. Uh, tell us where can people find more of your work? Well, I think one book that might be of particular interest to listeners of this podcast uh, is a book I wrote called Mind Versus Money, The War Between Intellectuals and Capitalism, which analyzes the reasons why Western intellectuals more than any other group in Western society have been hostile to capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, why this is a bad thing and perhaps uh, even what might be done about it um, and not to spoil anything there's a certain overlap in my prescriptions on the one hand and my prescriptions for liberalism 4.0 on the other hand mm -hmm. so I encourage people to look at mind versus money if nothing else it has wonderful cover pictures <laughs> and then there's this new work that you're leading that we are also going to be very interesting in following up well, the book is Freedom from Fear, an incomplete history of liberalism, a provocative new history of liberalism that also provides a roadmap for today's liberal. Sir, this was an absolute delight to be able to talk with a scholar like yourself. Um, I would like to continue this conversation with you if you like the idea. There are so many other things that we can go to and benefit from your wisdom. But until then, I'm going to thank you so much for giving me some of your time to come here on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this month of October. On the 6th of October, we have the International Conference Multiple Challenges for Transatlantic Partnership. This is organized by our friends from Institute for Politicals and Society in Prague. And this edition of this event will address the current major geopolitical issues facing US-EU cooperation. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. Yeah.